Hello, this is Matthew, the producer of Seek and Find with Dr. Mark Rivera. Before we begin this special episode, I'd like to take a moment to let you know that the recording quality for this conversation is not up to our usual standards. This was an unscheduled conversation with experts in urban ministry. This episode was recorded during a community event at our church, which caused some unavoidable noise. However, we believe the insights and perspectives shared by our guest on urban ministry are valuable and worth listening to. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and thank you for understanding. Welcome, everyone, to this uh, very special edition of Seek and Find. I welcome all of our listeners from wherever you are, and I once again appreciate you taking out this time to um, to be with us and navigate through these uh, subjects and topics that we talk about so often. They'll help to shape who we are and also shape what we do. And I've called this a very special edition because I have two very, very sp- special friends uh, and um, that are with us, and and uh, we're going to have a conversation. I was telling them prior to going on with all of you that we're going to have a tabletop conversation. All that's missing is a little bit of cafecito next door, next to our hands, so we can just have a conversation around the table. I am blessed and honored to be able to have Lisa Trevino Cummings with us. She's the president, founder of Urban Strategies, uh, whose uh, Urban Strategies has been around for over 20 years and based out of Washington, D.C., and does incredible kind of work, which we'll we'll hear a little bit about that as well. So, Lisa, welcome to, uh, to be with us. And we also have Bishop Dr. Ray Rivera, the founder of the Latino Pastoral Action Center mm-hmm. in the Bronx and uh, the head and, uh, and the initiator of, of several charter schools up there, also the founder of uh, the Sanctuary and uh, the organization called the Council, which is a, a consortium, a group of ministers and, and, and ministries that are connected to him and truly someone that is well known here in the not only the metropolitan area, but both of them actually known nationally for the work that they have done, are doing, and continue to do. So welcome to both of you. I am so glad that you're here. What I'd like to do is give a few moments to each of you to just um, let the folks hear your voice and, and just welcome you and and say a few words of, re- uh, words of remarks as we start. Lisa, let's start with you. Welcome to our, our programming today. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Appreciate it. No, it's an honor to be here and really humbled to be with the both Riveras, the legendary <laughs> Riveras here in, in New York um, both of you have had a huge impact in Latino community and the church, not just here, but it reverberates around the country. So thank you. Oh, it's so good to have you here. And I, now that you mentioned both of us are Rivera's, I, I always joke with Ray when we're in different places. And I, if he's speaking or, not, or I'm speaking, I always mention, you have a question that if Ray and I are related <laughs> and I say, yes, we are, he's my grandfather. And everybody, <laughs> everybody does the same and they bust out laughing. But, uh, but no, there's no relationship, but there is a, a kindred spirit between both mm-hmm. of us. Bishop Dr. Ray Rivera, the one and only, greetings. Give us a few words of remarks here. Well, thank you, Mark, uh, for inviting us. Uh, Dr. Mark Rivera, a friend of many years and also a collaborator with me in ministry of the Latino Pastoral Action Center, which uh, I founded about almost 32 years ago now. And I had the pleasure of having one of his spiritual daughters, Dr. Liz Rios, his wife, worked for me. And it was just a blessing. And when we would have conferences, uh, most of the supportive personnel (laughs) for all these big conferences would come from here for all of our uh, citywide conferences. So it's just a pleasure to be here. 
And uh, I greet all of you all in the name of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Amen. And, and one of the reasons why it was so easy to get behind you and the works of LPAC is because we have a commonality of not only ministering from the pulpit, but also in the public square and actively. And sometimes in the New York greater metropolitan area, that's not a, 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 a feature of most people in pastoral leadership and and so you and I connected that way. So uh, walking behind you was no problem because it was, uh, it, you know, we, we, we bought into the mission and believed in the mission Amen. that you were doing. And we're going to get to that in a few moments. But I'd like to open up, uh, Lisa, one of the things that I, that I know about you, and, you know, I, I thank God for your friendship. I really do. Uh, and, uh, and, and I know I'm, I keep hitting it over and over, but I'm really honored to have you and both, both of you here with me. It's a real privilege. But, you know, what I know of you, and you worked in the White House for a while, very, dis, you know, distinctive positions there and effective and excellent work that you, you, you did. But then there came a moment when you shifted away from the White House work, and then you established urban strategies and moved into that area. I mean, and, and that's, a, that's a huge move. How did that work out? I mean, what promoted you? What, what you know, did God, you know, open the skies and his thrun, thunderous voice said, okay, Lisa, it's time. Mm -hmm. How did that emerge for you? Yeah, you know, uh, that was a change, but for me, it wasn't a big change mm. because it was continuing continuing along the path of God's calling mm. uh, for me, and that was to work with the church to love its neighbors. Mm. And that calling actually happened uh, in a profound way uh, several years prior to me entering the White House. So the White House was just part of part of me following that call mm. and um, in not anything that I expected. Um, I didn't engage in politics or uh, federal matters for that, for that fact for uh, on that side. But um, I knew that after working at the white house that to pers continue pursuing my call, I could, I was, I had already done as much as I could from the inside mm. and to be obedient. I needed to move on the outside, continue pursuing that call. Wow, that's that's so fascinating. You you keep mentioning the word call, which is critical in my mind, uh, because when you follow the call of God over your life, whatever that path that might be, uh, there is a huge support that comes to the person, both internally, spiritually, and even in physical resources, because you're being obedient to God, and that's the key thing that we need to always keep in the in, the, in my in my opinion in the forefront of the of our mind. It isn't the the status or the prestige of the position or the organization, but rather what is the Lord whispering in your heart? And then when you follow that, and I hope that's helping our listeners today, listen to the whisperings of the Lord in your heart. Because as I hear you saying that, you know, it almost seems like the White House was just one of the places that you stopped by. I look at it and it says, no, the White House is the White House. That was not my destination. There you go, yeah. there you go. Yeah, yeah, just there you go. The so, it's a, And let, let me just probe a little bit deeper because we did a podcast a while back about women in ministry. Mm -hmm. Did that play in in a positive, negative way to this transition to you? Or did it, was, it a, a, was it an item at all? You know, it, it wasn't an item, at least, you know, as you look th look at things in the hindsight, you start realizing, oh, that's why that happened, et cetera. But I, you know, I grew up in the church and never felt um, limited in what I could do. Mm. Um, I didn't have a lot of models, but I didn't I didn't feel limited what I can do, and primarily because my grandmother and my mom were, you know, a force to be reckoned with mm. uh, in ministry. And so, um, and then I went into banking, and I was in banking for twelve years, and that was a male dominant. Uh, environment. So I was, 
I was accustomed to that. Okay. And so, so it didn't, it didn't slow me down. Um, I think probably now after being in the urban strategies 20 years, I'm like, Oh, I am the only woman there, aren't right. I? And so, but it, you know, thank the Lord I wasn't aware of it. Sometimes that, that ignorance is bliss. You know what? I thank the Lord you weren't aware of it also because <laughs> you just push forward regardless of gender. The Lord told you, the Lord called you, you just move forward on that. That's fascinating. But but, but Bishop uh, Ray, I, I want to point to you right now, really along the same lines of the question I just asked Lisa, and that is you, you did a huge transition as well from the faith-based work world uh, in fact, that's where I met you so many years ago when I was going through, I, I forget why I was in that building and why was I, I was seeing that organization, but nonetheless, I, remem- I remember distinctly you called me over and I said, who is this man calling me over? And then when we finally introduced ourselves, I'm saying in my mind, oh, this is the Ray Rivera, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but you transitioned from that world into really education, you know, you now you you have founded charter schools and you, you know deeply into making tremendous tremendous inroads in that area. Talk us talk to us a little bit about that, uh, Bishop, on that transition. Yeah, well, you know, really, <clears throat> my journey in the Lord began as a, as a young man, you know, fifteen years, fifteen to sixteen years old, and it was a conversion experience. And the conversion experience came within an indigenous Pentecostal church. Uh, that was the era of storefront churches, and uh, that church uh, uh, was really my foundation uh, when I went there and I had a personal experience with Jesus Christ and mm. a conversion experience. Certainly that was the primary experience, a relationship with God, but something else happened. And that was that I came from a dominant culture, which was uh, pretty much uh, white, and they stereotyped uh, Puerto Ricans, Latinos, and it was Puerto Ricans more. And, you know, my uh, stereotype image of the community was the corner beer-drinking crowd. It was the welfare cheat, the welfare recipient. Mm-hmm. That's what the dominant culture <clears throat> um, uh, perpetuated. But when I went into the church, a counter-assimilation process began. Mm-hmm. I saw and I received a new set of role models. The deacons were Latinos. The elders were Latinos. The pastor was Latino. The English language, which was belittled on the outside, you were called a hibaro if you spoke Spanish. In the indigenous church, Pentecostal, it was a source of pride. Mm. It was the dominant language. So I found myself at the altar, and it was the language that you would communicate in. Mm. because it was a a Spanish church. So I found myself at the altar saying, Lord, teach me how to speak Spanish. Mm. And I admired the verbiage of the Spanish speakers. So beside the conversion experience, which was the relationship with God, it was really the beginning of a counter-cultural assimilation process. And it was the beginning of a re-socialization process where I would now see my community, my leaders, instead of the stereotype image that the dominant culture was continuously perpetuating, that stopped there. Mm. And now that process began. So what am I saying with that? Yes, the indigenous church produces a Christ-centered experience, but it's also, but it also has 
social and political ramifications that are happening sometimes and you're even unaware of them mm. because uh, they're not articulated, but they're there. So that was my uh, initial experience. And then, you know, in the church, there's no educational criteria for going to Bible school. So six months later after conversion, I was in Bible school. Mm, right. Three years later, I had graduated. Four mm. years later, they were putting me to teach mm. in the Bible Institute. Five years later, they sent me out to pastor, and I was only 19 years old. Wow. And, th and so there I was, and I'll end with this, uh, 19 years old. I had to work because there was no salary. And in my council, which was the Assembly of Christian Churches, which kind of was the, like the Assemblies of God, but they, they didn't belong to any English department. It was an indigenous uh, council. Um, they send you to the worst church to test if you were called. <laughs> so, so they sent me to a storefront church, 12 people made up of three families. The families were all feuding with each other. I had to work. So the first job I landed was with the War on Poverty uh, Lisa, who's a young woman here, mm -hmm. I'm dating myself. She mm -hmm. probably read about Lyndon B. Johnson in the, in the history books right. and the war on poverty. Right. And I got my first job as a community organizer. And they put me to organize welfare recipients. So here I was in the daytime telling the welfare recipients, you can change the system now. You, know, you, you can get more on your budget now. Right. That was in the daytime. But in the nighttime, right. I would go back to church. And since I was a dispensationalist, I would tell the people, we can't change the system. we got to wait for the Lord's coming. <laughs> we have to wait for the All Lord's right. coming. So in the daytime, I was saying, we can change the system now. At night, I was saying, no, we have to wait for the Lord. <laughs> right. So that produced in me this tension, this duality, right. and that began my journey. Wow, and then that drove you into work in the public square, right? So that's uh, right. Right, social justice, all of that. Yeah, the question that that experience raised for me was this. Does the gospel respond to personal transformation hmm. and systemic transformation? Wow. Does our gospel respond to both of those needs? And I've spent, you know, 55 years trying to answer that. Yeah, but, but the marked difference is, in my opinion, is you uh, that, that question was asked and answered in that world of early Hispanic Pentecostalism, right? But what they did not do is establish the mechanism to change the world. So they knew the answer, but they were never able to implement. And you were able because then you stepped into the work at the Charities Building, and then you went into and started LPEC, and then you went into and established the church. So you put into place, because the earlier church, as I remember, because uh, I also grew up in the, during that period, was more about saving souls, uh, you know, street evangelism, establishing churches also, particularly up in the Bronx where you have John 3.16 that established so many other John 3.16s that are Absolutely. still working today. Absolutely. So that was the focus, but you decided to put uh, feet into the answer of that question, which, yes, we, it should respond in here, but also out there. We just didn't know, and I include myself when I say we, we didn't know what mechanisms that we needed, but yet you learned that, but then also implemented that through LPAC, through the schools that you've chartered, through even the council, the latest organization that you've developed, uh, 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 you put uh, you know, that into practice. 
And that's not a dig on them back then. We needed that spiritual foundation. I think you would agree with me. <laughs> we needed that. In fact, sometimes we need to go back to that Absolutely. that kind of prayer and fasting, and you know. Yeah. Uh, and and it's that we didn't articulate our theology very well. Right. So, right. us of uh, uh, the so-called white progressives, right? Uh, those that articulate that social justice part, they say that Pentecostalism was a future-oriented religion. Mm-hmm. Those of us that haven't reflected. Uh, reflected enough, we we buy into that, but that's a lie. Right, I agree. Pentecostalism wasn't future oriented. Mm-hmm. The Pentecostal message is: if you smoke, you got to stop smoking when in in the future. <laughs> no, you got to stop smoking right. when now. Now, yes. if you drink and you're dying of alcohol, you don't you don't stop drinking in the future. You got to right. stop drinking mm-hmm. now. So Pentecostalism is the most contemporary message we dealt with issues that our people were facing in the present. We're just stereotyped, and we accept those that stereotype us, but the Pentecostal Church had a tremendous social impact on the lives of people. Mm. That is powerful. Mm. That is very powerful. Yes. You know, as I'm listening to you and Lisa a few moments ago, we, we should have just had a podcast just on each one of them, a series of podcasts, because there's a richness that comes out. Mm-hmm. Seriously, it does, that has changed the actual tapestry of the Latino church that we see today. I mean, it might seem, that may seem like a grandiose statement, but I think it's a true statement because back then we did not have resources. We did not have people that provided resources that connected with with our theology, with our cultural experience. And yet both of you have been able to do tremendous inroads in that, which is very, very powerful. You know, uh, let me go back now, bounce back to, to Lisa to comment on the that survey that's that, that, that I mentioned to you earlier uh, with Christianity Today, actually specifically, where it was looking at the, um, you know, uh, 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 some challenges that emerged and that they identified, and you were a part of that. Can you tell us, uh, talk to that for uh, to us sure. for a little bit? In the, in the last several years, there have been a number of surveys of the church. Um, I remember a big one that was done was, what did the church do during COVID? And I know from personal experience that our Latino churches did it. Uh, I mean, the work that they did was immense. And so I called this um, survey company, um, you know, internationally recognized. I said, can you share with me the data on Latino churches? Mm. So I want to verify what I've, what I've believed to be true. And they said, actually, we don't have any Latinos that were surveyed, included mm. in the survey. And I said, well, that's a problem. <laughs> and um, so our team said, you know what? We probably have the closest relationships to many churches. Why don't we do our own survey? So it was it was sort of a um, it wasn't a you know the rigorous testing. Although we did have UCLA and Dr. Robert uh, Chow Rometal mm. uh, involved, as well as Fuller Seminary, okay. uh, put together the survey. Uh, survey and that what that looked at was what are the programs and services that churches did do, were doing during COVID, and what do they continue. Um, to to do post COVID, um, and the results were what verified what we had experienced. That in fact, uh, the churches were doing amazing work. Mm-hmm. A significant portion of their uh, budgets, up to seventy percent of their budgets, were going to serve commu- individuals outside of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were certainly community giving, community serving, um, and then did that. Most of the churches that responded probably had budgets of less than 300000 mm. So that's the church. And then uh, subsequently, 
um, Christianity Today has published a survey, but that was more that's been more focused on sort of the demographics. Okay, I think of the church, and so I think what based on the fact that there's those two services, there's a lot that we don't know, mm, mm. and so I think we've got to continue to pull from different resources to um, to uh, describe the church. Um, that's beyond our individual experiences, because I do think, um, even in this conversation, while you guys are the pioneers and you talk about the old days, your old days are still uh, on the horizon for many churches in the country. Sure. And so, um, so I think there's just a lot to learn. Uh, but we do know is that uh, our the Latino churches they are in the communities, uh, they are serving those that. Um, government-funded agencies call hard to reach. Mm. Uh, I say, no, you just don't know where to reach. Mm. Um, That's good. But, they're, but they are there. And so, um, so yeah, there's a tremendous impact that our Latino churches are having uh, in the country. Yeah. You know, some of the things you mentioned actually confirm my own suspicion, and I, don't, I can't speak for the, the landscape of the, of the nation, but surely in this parish, when I say this parish here in the Northeast and particularly here in New York— that, and I have friends that are from Latino churches and they pastor that group. I have also friends in the um, established uh, dominant culture, again, race term. And I also have friends in Asian and African-American. And um, the, the, the Latino church weathered the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, w- I was trying to grapple with why, but then I, I finally realized we've been used to struggling through things. Right. We're weathering a, we've weathered a lot there of you things. Go. Yeah, yeah. There COVID you go. was just another one of those. Exactly. It was just another wave of something that happened there, by the way, and we believed this all along in the Latino world, that it will come to an end as well. So mm-hmm. there was no panic. So as we emerge out of this time, I see these other groups, you know, like the churches that I know that shut down. Yeah. None of them are Latino. Right. That's None right. of them. And yet some of them are larger with larger budgets than the Latino churches. But the Latinos have this thing already inside, part of how we do life and ministry that we're going to get through. And, you know, this church, the, the church that I pastor, is an example of that. When 45 years ago, the building that we were renovating, that we were worshiping in and we, we vacated to renovate, uh, collapsed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was horrible. We had no building, no we, but we had congregation and we had unity, mm-hmm. and we had a strong faith. Mm-hmm. So from that, that others would have, would have walked away from, right? And this is before I right. became pastor, right. but I was here as a member. Um, uh, would have walked away from the church. Said, oh no, 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 no. This, this, yeah, it hurts and it's a problem and it's difficult, but we're going to get through. And sure enough, we we rose up from the rubble. Which, and I'm making a long statement here. Which I think is why this church served as one of the key churches during 9-11 attack. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. Because, yes, it was very painful for my city, very painful for New York, and very painful for the Latino church specifically. But for us, it was just another situation that we just had right. to weather and get through. And I think, you know, when you said that before, it started to resonate. I said, oh, that's why we got <laughs> through. Well, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book yes. called David and Goliath. And okay. so, um, you know, the— just the short version of that is, you know, Dave, yes, God did intervene and David conquered Goliath, but the intervention wasn't just at that point. Mm-hmm. The intervention began long before when, as David was uh, being prepared for tough situations, for, for tough conditions, right? Mm-hmm. His smallness, he, he, he had to overcome things first before he got to the Goliath. That's excellent. That's excellent. That's wonderful. Amen. Dr. Rivera. 
Bishop, my friend, I want to go to you right now and, and, and hear, because you were talking before, I almost inserted my next state, my next you know, topic when you were talking before, because what you were describing uh, before growing up in the church and all of this that was going on in the Latino Spanish speaking church and then emerging from that and realizing all the things that kept us captive. Because mm-hmm. when, I, when I mentioned captivity theology, I am only referring to you and your work. <laughs> Wherever I go, right. I don't know anyone else that wrote it the way you did. And, 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 and I read through your book. And by the way, your book is available now in Spanish too. It's been translated. Yes. So it's open now to the Latino Spanish speaking world. Um, you, for me, are the resource in that area. Captivity theology. What got you? Was it that growing up in the Pentecostal church, that conversion that you had that you had said before? Is that what showed you how we were? Because what I learned is it isn't just that the heart and the soul of man is captive, but systems are captive. Systems are captive and need liberation. Yeah. One of the things that uh, happened, you know, after uh, I began that journey, pastored the Pentecostal church, I had an experience pastoring a Reformed church, so I went into the main line denominational world with my Pentecostal experience. And then I founded the sanctuary, which is 24, about 21 years old, which is kind of a neo-reformed Pentecostal church. And uh, I left that three years ago when I was consecrated as a bishop. And it's the same question that, that, that guided me. Is the gospel holistic? Mm-hmm. Does the gospel respond to the personal and the social? Uh, and what we have, unfortunately, those that, of us that come out of a Pentecostal uh, evangelical tradition, uh, we have a dichotomized gospel. We have a departmentalized gospel. It's not that we don't do those things, but we have them in separate departments because this is the gospel that was taught to us, and 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 we kind of internalize it. So. Everything we do is informed by our theology, by our discipleship. Mm. So, you know, a lot of fads come into the church, multiculturalism, all of this stuff, you know. And, you know, it's reconciliation, and and that's sometimes passed off as eating each other's food and dressing up in each other's (laughs) clothes, you know. And that's that's multiculturalism, and and, and that's uh, reconciliation, yeah. So so people yearn for that spirit of the church being one, right? So some of them mistakenly leave the homogeneous Latino church, and they go to a a multicultural church, right, Mm -hmm. where there's a pretty much dominant culture, a a little dash of black and brown, but, but what they find is that even those churches are not really multicultural uh, in doctrine, in theology, and they have disappointing experiences if they grow in their own identity as a person. I say that to say that I had a person that came to me for counseling and said, Pastor, you know, I, I went to the heterogeneous church, the multicultural churches. I wanted fellowship with all of my brothers and sisters. I wanted to transcend the uh, nationalistic church. I I believe that in heaven we're going to be from all races and all tribes. I wanted to experience that here on earth. And I had a it was good. The worship was good. You know, smoke was coming out of the uh, out of the out of the pulpit and the lighting was great, you know. But when uh, George Floyd died, you know, I talked to a white sister, and, and I was concerned, and, 
I was afraid for my son. Mm -hmm. And I was so troubled by her reaction. Oh, she said, no, that's not uh, the fault of, uh, you know, that's the fault of the people. They're criminals and right. they're this. So, so here this was my sister in Christ, but she didn't understand really at a deep level right. my experience. Mm. You know, because it was multicultural in the food, it was multicultural in the clothing, it was multicultural. But as far as what formed the people, yes, their identity, their cultural context, it mm. hadn't changed. Mm. She had one. She never had the talk with her son. Mm. And the black and brown person has to have the talk when you get stopped by a cop. Make sure you don't make a sudden move. Sure. She, she never experienced that. So she didn't understand my fear that I believe that my son can be killed by a black person or another Latino person in the hood because of crime on crime. Right. But I'm also afraid that they can be killed by a cop if he stops. She hadn't right. experienced that. That wasn't part of of uh, of her uh, a reality. So all of that brought me to say, well, what what What's the theology that informs us? How are we discipling the church? And that gave birth to, to the book, to captivity theology, to to holistic methodology, and it was crystallized for me in Holland, Michigan. I was preaching in a five thousand member RCA church. That's mm -hmm. in the book, by the way. I give the story, and after I preach, I make an altar call, and people come to the altar. The pastor allowed me to do. He said, "Yeah, go ahead. We used to do that." Mm -hmm. You know, when the first when the church yeah, first started. <laughs> and and I and then, you know, part of the experience was to go to the elder's house. So that was an intercultural experience. They can ask you questions. And this was about a seventy year old man, um, seventy five like I am now. But I was only thirty three, thirty mm -hmm. and he said, You know, boy, Reverend Rivera, that was a powerful message. I'm so glad you're here. And you're not like all those other Mexicans in town. <laughs> <laughs> and he told me that, and I said, wow, did he just say yeah. that? And no awareness, you know, he was no. just, he was a good man. He Sincerely, was an elder. Yeah, so that. That, that raised for me the same question. Here he was an elder on Sunday, mm. but uh, kind of a racist from Monday to Saturday, right. but not a mm -hmm. conscious one. And he, you know, and he didn't well, know Mexican from Puerto Rican. No, <laughs> no difference. No, yeah. no. A fish that's in water, he doesn't know he's right. surrounded by water. That's good. That's good. Yeah. In, yeah, in that's other words, it's just... It's just who they are, who they've always been. But then that click for me, does the gospel respond to personal transformation mm -hmm. and also the systems and structures? And for me, the answer is yes, but it has to do with the type of discipleship, mm -hmm. yeah. authentic kingdom discipleship that's not subject to the dominant culture and the principalities and, and powers. I'll end with this. This part, one of the questions that I'm asking now is, in, in Galatians 1, 16 and 17, it says that, you know, there are uh, thrones, yes. dominions, mm. principalities, mm. and powers. They were created by him and for him. Mm. But then our other f f uh, famous verse, especially Pentecostals, evangelicals, we wrestle not with Flesh, flesh and blood, blood, but with principalities and powers. So I try to provoke our people by saying, well, if the principalities and powers were created 
for by him mm-hmm. and for him, why do we have to wrestle with them? <laughs> in, in other <laughs> words, if, if God created them yes. for him yes. and by him, but then we're rest then Paul tells us we're wrestling with them. Something happened mm-hmm. with those dominions, thrones, principalities, and powers that altered their nature. Mm-hmm. And what altered it was the fall. There you go. And the fall ushered in captivity. Captivity. Mm-hmm. So every system, every stu- structure, nothing that is, is as it was intended to be. Mm, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Everything has fallen. Board of Education, fallen. Everything. Wall Street, fallen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the health system, fallen. It's all fallen. Mm. It's all subject to principalities and powers. He's the prince of this world. He's mm. the prince of the air. Now, does that mean that they don't have a function? No, because they do have a function uh, to provide civil stability. So when the cop is functioning according to his calling and function, praise the Lord. Right. But when he's functioning in his fallen state, so the the role of the church, I think that's a question you're going to ask, is we have to seek discernment because collective sin, systemic sin, has the potential to be divine, but it also has the potential to be demonic. Mm. When is the system being divine? When is the system being demonic? Mm. And we have to be able to discern that. That is powerful. Mm-hmm. That is so powerful. Mm-hmm. You're provoking me. <laughs> you're provoking me, one, to read your book again, because mm-hmm. I've read it. And secondly, you're provoking me to start researching a little bit deeper that Colossians text as well and how it counterpoints with your... That's just amazing. Just amazing the way you unpack that. It really is amazing. Thank you so much. That Praise is amazing. Lord. The other thing that that I see in you for a moment, if as you were even sharing... And I think it's reflective of the Hispanic landscape, culture, not even just the religious world, just our culture. We can be very, um, and I'll coin a a theological, we're we're very pastoral. Like even when you said about the brother there that he said he mistaken you for a, he said you're you're, you're not like the rest of the Mexicans. Mm -hmm. Your reaction, uh, Bishop, is, is one reaction of, you know, he's not really like that. It's not, you know, he's not intentionally racist. Where others from other, tra- other cultural traditions, would right away not only label him, but push back. And I think that's what, what I have found in my life as a Latino, an urban Hispanic, and a, now a pastor in, in, in that role, that we tend to invite people to the table, even though we may not necessarily like them or agree with them, but we invite them to the table to partake with us and offer redemption rather than condemnation, because mm. con- condemnation will, you know, just divide us. And and I don't I don't know the answer to this, you know, of where I'm going. But where I'm going, I'm you know, for for such a time as this, the Lord has placed us as Hispanics with that kind of quality mm. that can really bring restoration and unity to the world that we're living in today, or at least to the small parish that I'm in charge of, you know. And I think if we get that. Um, because there's things about us being, whether you're Puerto Rican or, or, or Mexican or Cuban or whichever, or from Central South America, but I think there are some commonality other than language. Mm-hmm. And one of them that I have found is that inclination toward being forgiving, mm-hmm. not holding a grudge. Yeah. But even though we don't agree, you're still part of my village. Mm-hmm. 
called humanity, you know. Let's, let's try and work on that. Yeah. And some people yeah. consider that a weakness. They say, ah, oh, ustedes están con ese ay bendito. <laughs> yeah, con yeah. el ay bendito. They think it's but a it's weakness. But it's a strength, in mm -hmm. a way. It's yeah, 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 yeah. It's a strength. It is. No, It's a strength, yeah, absolutely. But and but we have to be, um, and this is where, where I'm at, I, I want to give strength to the Hispanic values that I have. Right. That enrich me, enrich the ministry I'm, I'm over with, and I'll render account to the Lord unapologetically. It is not trying to transform your life and your religious experience, your spiritual faith journey into a, a gender or even an ethnicity. You know, I am what I am. I'm a, a male Hispanic, but there's some qualities and values that we have that are so similar to, I think, what the, the church should embody. Some things they shouldn't embody, but right. in this one, we draw people in. I think we should embody that. But anyway, let's, let's stop there because sadly, again, time, time. I can't wait till eternity when we can just keep going on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I don't want to close without hearing both of yours perspective on, um, on where the church is going. And I'm speaking specifically about the Latino church. You mentioned some of it, uh, uh, Dr. Ray. Um, but Lisa, you is also to to remark on you know what does it look like? what does it, the, the future uh, what what strategically where is the church likely to head you know uh, um, uh, forward because I think as we paint that picture is going to allow us to creatively put together solutions resources you know we we have a generation that are not baby boomers that will take over you know and they're not going to lead and govern the way we did. Uh, but what does it look like? You know, right now, uh, things being done online or blogging, the way we, uh, uh, what is it, streaming and all of that, right? That was something that we didn't see in the storefront church. Well, we couldn't afford it, but we didn't, we didn't see it. Where is it going? What does the pastor of the next generation who will take the pulpits, what does that look like? Lisa, you want to start sure. first? Yeah, you know, I think, I think in some ways the verdict is still out, but I will say, um, you know, a few years ago, I don't know if you know Dr. Jesse Mudanda, but he's yes. just, just the father of the yes. Latino church, and um, we were, I was, had the opportunity to sit next to him at an event, and it, they were calling all the pastors out to, to, um, to do, to pray a blessing or something, and he whispered to me, he says, Lisa, the ones that are going to be up there in the future are the ones who are serving community. Mm. He said, the ones who are showing mm. authentic relationship, mm. the ones who are living out their mm. faith, not in the words, but in their actions. And I think that, you know, if, if you do look at the surveys of just religiosity in the, in the country, there's, a, there's this growing group of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, who, um, interestingly, particularly in the Latino community, they're not attending church but they find themselves religious and re reverencing God. Mm -hmm. So I think the opportunity for the church is to reexamine itself, um, put aside things that have been, um, you know, have been about tradition, that have been about man-made kind of things mm -hmm. that we've been uh, beholden to, and really dig deeper into the Scripture. Mm -hmm. Say, what does that look like? What is this gospel? What is this good news that we have? Um, and and to live it out in real ways, and so I don't, I don't, I think the the church that is um, that is going to stay in the traditional model of we're going to have service at nine and eleven, and you know this is the order of service, and you've got to come at this time, and I I think if we stay on that, we're going to miss the opportunity mm. to reach those that God God is calling to Himself. That is very good. That is very good. Yep. Bishop, what's your perspective on that? You know, like I, I would agree with uh, Lisa, it's 
the verdict is out because, you know, I've uh, sometimes you're wise, not because you're wise, because but you've been around a long yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, it's longevity. And I've seen a lot of cycles. And I remember this generation, uh, the younger or baby boomers or very young or older generation Xs, a lot of them are interned at LPAC. You mm-hmm. know, That's right. Some of them that are writing now That's and right. so all of these. And I remember when they first came to me, you know, and they came with such critiques of the indigenous Latino church, the legalism, mm-hmm. the dogmatism, yes. the male chauvinism, you know, and boy, they, were, they would put down the Latino church in and, and for some reason, God kept me from that. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Maybe it's I'm an older baby boomer. So when they would give all that stuff to me, I would say, listen, I'm going to give you a suggestion. When you build a church, then you can criticize. <laughs> but you haven't done nothing yet, That's right. I would tell them. That's and right. they, would, they would get upset at me. i say, you haven't done nothing. You know, it's, <laughs> it's very easy. You haven't done nothing. And I tried to, to you know, always affirm you know, the tradition of which they came out of. A lot of them, you know, didn't listen, so they went into the white world or they went into the black world. Mm-hmm. By black, I mean black is a social construct yeah. that really doesn't exist. Like right. I was talking about white, that applies to black too. Sure. It, but to, into the African-American world or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And and they and they went in there thinking it was going to be much better, but it wasn't. <laughs> they experienced the same kind of issues, you know, they, the, the same kind of power plays, the same kind. So that generation, which I, I, I'm kind of in contact with, is almost in the process of, of reconstructing themselves, you know. What am I, you know? I see a lot of them now. If they're darker, they're, they've they've embraced the term Afro-Latino, you know, and they think that's new. But Felipe Luciano, my friend, chairman of the Young Lords, he mm-hmm. was one of the first ones that, and he even you know have that has that famous phone poem, you know, my pretty nigger, right? Yes, yes, so Felipe yes. did that forty years ago. So, but some of them, you know, because this is a process of growing, of moving into that, and then when they move and they come back to me and they're excited, I say, "Look, oh, praise the Lord, yeah, the struggles they're common, you know." You can do that, but, you know, you don't want to change uh, resisting being Eurocentric for now being Afrocentric or being Latino-centric. You can, like you said, you can be rooted in your identity, but there has to be an element of transcendence. That's true. Because ultimately, the kingdom transcends all of these things. Now, yes, the dominant culture that has more power sometimes you know, particularly in this country, there there's expression of, of whiteness. That, you know, it's very dangerous. We see the country being polarized, and, and you know, to such a degree, and and we see uh, it's it more blatant, more visible now. But I think that all of this that happens in the demographics of the uh, secular society is expressed in the church too. So now you see, you know, you see these uh, gentrified churches, right, and they're coming into the neighborhoods and these are the the kids that are kids you know the young men and women that are transcending that uh identity just in themselves and they want to be kingdom you follow they they want to seems to me they want to have a kingdom mindset they want to develop transcendent you know communities where there's 
a sense of uh, oneness in the body. And I see that struggle happening in mm-hmm. many of these local church plants. Mm-hmm. They're really trying to raise the issues. There. But it's not easy. Yeah. It's not easy because what we experience in this country, and I'm only talking about this context. The U.S. Mm-hmm. context is very special context, you know, because of, of the nature of, of, of this country. You, when you go to the third world or the global south, you know, people, uh, their issues of how do they get clean water, you know, right, right, <laughs> or right. how do they eat very every basic, day, you know, basic. how do they eat every day. We're the ones that have the luxury about mm-hmm. debating about all these things. But it's very, very interesting. Uh, and I feel the future of the church is is going to be if we can develop uh, to use your term uh, a kingdom theology right. that critiques all of the fallen systems mm-hmm. right and and that and that uh, doesn't identify with any particular one but not to decide is to decide so I'm a Democrat you mm-hmm. know I'm Unapologetically, I'm a Democrat, and, and I'm a Democrat because I think after my prayer, after my reflection, I align with some of those policies because my paradigm for ministry is the poor. Mm. That's my main paradigm, more than abortion, more than gay rights, more than mm-hmm. all of that. My paradigm for ministry is the poor. For some, it's pro-life. That's their paradigm. For some, it's traditional marriage, you follow? And that becomes their paradigm. For, they they kind of see everything to all those through through that particular lens. And it's very subjective. I mean, Lisa can meet a brother that's wonderful in every area, but if she's pro-life and you're not pro-life, right. they, they'll demonize right. you yeah, just on that issue that's because true. that's their dominant issue. Right. I try to stay away from that and just focus on my paradigm for ministry which is the poor, but I try to be biblical. And recently I've been preaching about this, trying to educate some of our ministers. They'll use Matthew 25. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. used it, I've used mm-hmm. it. And here's how they use it. They use it as a service model. Right. I was hungry, right? I was naked. But then the Lord brought me recently, I've only been doing this about six months, illumination, because it was always there. Verse 46. Verse 46, look at it when you go home. Verse 46, Matthew 25, 46. Jesus says to those on the left, because you didn't do all of these things, then he says, enter into eternal punishment and judgment. Mm. So what the Lord gave me is that not ministering to the poor has eternal consequence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we never and we never speak about it in that context. We mm-hmm. speak about it in the context of service. Excellent. Yes. But the actual the words of Jesus directly, because you didn't do it, yes. enter, enter into eternal punishment and condemnation. Now you're going to tell me, Ray, you're going to send everyone that doesn't treat the poor right to hell? <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to balance it out a little. If others can focus on other issues, I'm, I'm going to say, well, Jesus said, right. if you didn't do it, enter into eternal. <laughs> so I think, we, I think we need to balance right. the scales mm-hmm. a little mm-hmm. right, right. because we 
there's not enough focus on what Jesus said directly. And this wasn't Paul. This wasn't James. This was Jesus in the parable directly. And it's in all, it's in, in most of the Gospels. And he says that not serving the poor may have eternal consequences. Wow. So that's, that's where I leave it. And oh, I think we have, to, we have to have a gospel that's centered on being holistic, but that the poor is an integral part of that yes, gospel. Yes, the theology of the poor. That's excellent, mm-hmm. excellent. And, and, and your observations, both of you, is, is on target because we're strategically brainstorming. Uh, I was I had privileged uh, I was privileged a few weeks ago to go to Morehouse College, right? Predominantly black, obviously, and incredible incredible experience. But one of the things I walked away from those uh, few days that we were there was the way that they um, honored the ancestors, yeah. right? The ancestors, rather than forget. They're not the only culture that does that. I mean, we we see that throughout humanity. But honoring the and even in scripture, we see the honoring of ancestors. And I think that's one of the things that are critical that we as Latino leaders not forget. You even mentioned some. You mentioned Felipe Luciano. You mentioned um, uh, Jesse Miranda, uh, Roberto Miranda. And then there are others, Kitin Silva, who's still alive. So we, we can talk about him. You know, Luciano Padilla. We, uh, we have Orlando Costas, who's you know, incredible as well. And, and on and Adolfo Carrion. You know, names of people. Because we're, we're, we get pieces in our own leadership style from all of these people, even mentioning Mama Leo and mm-hmm. Amy Cortese, you know, mm-hmm. there's pieces of the way that they led that shaped the way we do things. That's right. And so we need to keep those names alive and, mm-hmm. and honor those as well. That's what I would tell this week. I was meeting with a younger pastor, and after he said his thing, which was very good and very incredible potential, called and all that, and I told him exactly what I said there. You know, don't just read the common theological books as you go through seminary. But let me tell you about these authors that are also life-changing. And not just the ones that passed away, but some current ones, like the book that just came out that just is now offered with uh, Jose Humphreys and his, and his, his partner there, right? Uh, or his friend, rather, I should say. Uh, co- colleague is the better word. Um, look at the current authors that have written. Efrain Acosta is another one, right? And others that we can continue mentioning and mentioning. Not forget there were pieces of all of the, those. And then... Um, Honor those that have poured into our lives without even an expectation of anything coming right back. Unfortunately, we have to end. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so invigorated to continue picking your brain. But, you know, thank you, Lisa, so much for being with us. Really, I applaud you, celebrate you, and just thank you for the friendship and for joining us in this time. And, and Ray, as always, I have a, a easier access with you because you're only a borough away from us, Amen. just a little bit north, and we can see you there. And But thank you also for your insights uh, uh, over us uh, in our lives. And, and I like what you said. One of the things that really impacted me is, you know, you, you just become very wise by just being around a little while. <laughs> you know, you get very wise. I have to keep that in mind as I continue to stay around. I also want to thank our producer today. Matthew, thank you for helping us with this. And Listeners, just stay with us with these episodes. This one is is, is, is particularly a special, uh, a special one. Uh, so make sure that you uh, look at all the previous ones that we have and, and look forward to bringing to, to you more thought-provoking conversation through this, these episodes of Seek and Find. God bless you so much. Have a wonderful day.